Dr. Ravi Iyer is the executive director of civilpolitics.org, a social psychology nonprofit whose goal is to educate the public about social science research on improving intergroup relations across moral divides. That's a bit of a mouthful, but basically they work on the social science behind how groups can work with each other across group divides. So in other words, he's doing the real social science work of depolarization. Additionally, Ravi has worked with Jonathan Haidt, who is the author of The Righteous Mind, a book I am constantly pushing on this show. And he and Haidt set up yourmorals.org, which is where you can go test your moral intuitions. And they have gathered all this data about it. And they're figuring out which foundations they think are real and which ones aren't and all that stuff. Anyway, just to say, Ravi has been involved with Jonathan Haidt for a while. And so I was really excited to talk to him. And the first thing I wanted to ask him was kind of a dumb question, it seems, like, why would I even start this podcast? But in his own words, what is the problem with polarization? Why does it matter practically that we learn to understand each other? You know, no matter what the problem is that you think we are facing as a country, we're not going to be able to solve it as long as uh, we are polarized. And, you know, human beings are really good at forming groups that compete with other groups. I mean, you can think of sports as a natural example of this, right? Like sports fans are divided by very little. They are fans of the same team. They often have a lot in common. And they have this great animosity sometimes to fans of the other team based on really nothing, just because, you know, you, they happen to be competing on some arbitrary exercise, right? So, so human beings are really good at this. And, and so we, we compete in groups and we've evolved to do this. And when you compete in groups, you kind of become blind. Your, your rational self, you know, doesn't really apply. So you may think that, oh, sure, we can come together and solve healthcare or we can come together and solve inequality or climate change or whatever it is that is your problem, the decline of family, what, whatever your problem is that, that you think is an issue, we're just not going to solve it, you know, People who don't like each other don't compromise. People who don't like each other don't come to agreements. You know, no one's ever convinced by, you know, the weight of, you know, argument on, you know, you know, you, you never post an article on Facebook and, and end up convincing someone of, of the truth. What you, you, if you, if they like you or they, they learn something about you, that is oftentimes the way that that real change happens. And so, as long as we're this polarized. You know, that's just never going to happen. So we kind of have to solve polarization first before we can solve all the other big problems that we might want to solve. Yeah. So one of the examples that we talk about on this show, our guest Michael Ware shared it with him. And I think it's also in his book, Reclaiming Hope. But when he was an Obama aide, the first term, there was a sort of bipartisan compromise bill on the table that almost got signed to like to reduce abortions and it had purchase from pro-life and pro-choice groups and it didn't happen at the last minute because of the perceived political cost to both sides to the Obama administration with the left and from the right to be perceived to be working with Obama so that's obviously a practical example Do, are you aware of any other practical examples obviously that one is based on some sort of inside information from Michael, but can you give us another example of like, here's a thing that could have been fixed and wasn't? I mean, I think the thing that we see playing out regularly, I mean, I think every issue, honestly, we see playing out regularly could be fixed. And there are common sense solutions that we all agree on. You know, you can think of gun control, like uh, yeah. you can think of uh, healthcare. I mean, like, you know, there are common sense solutions to healthcare that everyone agrees upon. 
But the debate is so dominated by, you know, the far left and far right. I mean, you know, the Republicans don't want to people to be dying in the streets and and Democrats don't want, um, you know, abortions everywhere either. Right. Right. So, I mean, like all these bogeymans of like funding for Planned Parenthood or, um, you know, people dying in the streets, like like there are common sense solutions to all of these things. And, you know, somehow we we get into our partisan corners and you can read articles about, you know, the leadership telling people, you know, don't cooperate with the other side, you know, don't, you know, and they're constantly in campaign, right? Like, like, you know, you see Democrats being like, you know, well, you know, if we cooperate with the other side, then it gives them bipartisan cover or or Republicans saying like, you know, if I, if we give the senators something to point to as a bipartisan accomplishment, you know, then we won't be able to take them out in the midterms. I mean, like, when do you actually govern? You know, when is, when is the time when you're not competing and you're actually trying to like solve the problem? Yeah. So as you know, we're recording this in the, in the midst of the sort of 10 days of Trump sanity with, uh, you know, Comey and the memo and the Russian meeting. And I keep seeing these, uh, tweets or posts from friends like, Hey, democratic Congress, there's blood in the water, be a shark for once. And I'm like, no, don't be a shark for once. Like be a healer for once, uh, reach out to like, like now, like I don't, I'm no expert on how Congress works day to day, but if I'd look for a strategy, I would be like, no, 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 go to GOP senators and and Congress people and say, look, do the right thing on Trump and Russia and Comey. And here's what we will give you. If you do like no one, and I don't know if they have that power, but if they had that power, like persuade them rather than go, oh, well, it's, it's always all out war. And so whenever we can take a shot at the other side, we should take it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. Uh, the, the one thing I'd add to that is, you know, a lot of times these things aren't as transactional as you might, right. uh, you I'm sort sure. of, uh, and so one thing that we talk about at civil politics is that people are social first and then they're kind of rational second. So it's not so much like, you know, you cooperate with us on Comey and we'll, and, and a lot of times, honestly, moral issues are, they're not compromisable. You know, like I think some people will sort of recoil at the idea of using that as a bargaining chip. So th- I think the, the way you, you really want change to happen is kind of at a more organic level. Go to dinner with your colleagues, right? Like kind of that's what I'd recommend. I wouldn't say like, don't try to compromise on a specific thing, you know, get to know them. And, and we've seen compromises happen through people getting to know each other. So like the budget deal that happened a few years ago between Patty Murray and Paul Ryan happened because, you know, they started to get to know each other and they realized that they have uh, more in common than they might think. And and that happens periodically. When people get to know each other, they realize like, oh, look, we all care about, you know, having healthcare for most people, right? Like, so we let's let's figure out a solution. When people don't get to know each other, and unfortunately that's increasingly the case where, you know, people people are increasingly, both politicians and citizens are increasingly encountering people the other side less often, then the other stuff doesn't happen. So yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily put it in such transactional terms. I if I wanted to be a healer in Congress right now, I'd be trying to get to know the other side and less let focusing a little less on just, you know, the, the some sort of specific policy aim. Yeah, that is that is great. It's funny, we we think that Congress people would be sort of immune to the daily life psychology of an average voter. But you're saying, no, like just how 
in our own lives as American citizens and especially online and even where we've, you know, liberals have moved to urban centers and the rural urban divide is, is greater than ever. And all of that stuff, like where we don't spend time with people with whom we disagree, that it's not like Congress people are immune to that. No, I mean, I think, I think one thing that Trump is showing us in some ways is that personality in some ways is important. I mean, like, like we are people first. Trump is a person first. And for, you know, I don't, I don't think he's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you can psychologize Trump all the time, but like, I, I don't actually think he's an evil person. I just think, you know, he, he's a unique person. He has a unique personality and that plays out. And we are all unique personalities, not just Trump. Like we're all products of our upbringing. We're all products of everything we've gone through. And we all relate to people at social levels. And, and, you know, yeah, I mean, there isn't this thing where these professionals or these other people are not human first. Like everyone is a human first. And everyone who works at a company with other people probably realizes this, that, you know, if you want to succeed as a company, there's a human level that you have to get right for things to, to, to work, right? If you don't get that human level right, nothing really works because we are all human beings first and then sort of like worker bees second. A lot of you are probably unfamiliar with moral foundations theory. I don't blame you. But basically, it's the academic theory proposed by Jonathan Haidt and others, colleagues of his, that tries to explain why good people disagree so vehemently about politics and religion, among other things. And the basic idea is that there are all of these sort of moral modules or moral taste buds that exist in every human being and in every human society. But certain societies and certain subgroups within a society will prioritize some more than others. So, for instance, liberals care a lot more. They tend to care a lot more about fairness of equality of outcomes and not harming people, sort of justice. Whereas a conservative society will have a much stronger sense of authority, deference to authority and loyalty, loyalty to the clan or the family or the flag. There's a lot more that could be said about this. You should definitely read up about it, and you should read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. But anyway, that's the basics of moral foundation theory. So I asked Ravi, when he talks about moral foundation theory, where does he like to start? So I start from a place of intuitionism, which really is what informs the entire theory. Okay. So, um, you know, so so moral foundations theory, uh, the idea is that there are these moral modules that have evolved with all, all of us that sort of touch us at a more instinctual level. Um, and some of us have more activation of some modules versus others. And, and so we, and, and so we can measure these modules and you can sort of see the differences that people have in a more descriptive way rather than a more prescriptive way, right? We all believe in loyalty to some degree, right? But maybe some people differ to, you know, in terms of how much they agree with that principle. Um, yeah. And they often come from our more intuitive place. And not just individuals, but societies as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Groups of people, societies, and oftentimes, you know, yeah, values are often, you know, sort of co-evolve at a cultural level as well as the individual right. level. So the part though that I think sometimes get lost, and so I'll explain like the the things that we measure, but but I think the the basis of it all really is this idea of intuitionism, which I've touched upon in our earlier conversation, is just that you know our values aren't things that arise out of rational thought. It's not like you know I want to figure out the greatest good for the greatest number, so therefore this is right and this is wrong. Like you can do that, but that is not how 
people decide what is right and wrong. And that's a lot of what we talk about. You know, if you read The Righteous Mind, you know, some of those moral dilemmas that they that they show that are in the book are about sort of illustrating the concept of, of moral dumbfounding or, um, you know, where, where you, you know something is right or wrong, but you really don't know the reason why you, you think something's right or wrong. And hopefully in seeing that in yourself, you realize that, oh, my, my beliefs about right and wrong aren't really a rational thing. It's really coming out of my emotions and my intuitions that have evolved. And, you know, there's some things that I have in common with others about those, those intuitions and some things I don't. Yeah. Um, I think one of the examples from the book that just, just to kind of pepper this with examples is uh, they ask people this thought experiment of a man who buys a chicken from a supermarket. Uh, He takes it home, but before he eats the chicken, he has sex with the chicken. And people in various cultures and of various moral frameworks will often say, well, that's, that's wrong. It's wrong to have sex with a chicken. Like that's not what chickens are for, but they can't really articulate why, but they feel, you know, no one was harmed, you know, or whatever. So that's, that's an example of what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and then you can feel yourself, if somebody asks you, why is that wrong? You can feel yourself like, thinking you need a reason because yeah, that's how we yeah. walk around in society all the time. And that's kind of like, you know, when you say you have trouble doing, I have trouble doing, everyone has trouble like believing that they're more rational than they are. And so I think a lot of what we do as you know, civil politics is really just sort of, it's kind of like a parable. Like, like, you know, we, we all know that, you know, it's better not to cry wolf or that it's better to go to bed early and, early, you know, wake up early. But sometimes we need stories and, and sometimes those stories take the form of studies or, you know, maybe sometimes they take the form of movies, but you need things to remind us of things that we already know. We already know that we are more social than rational, but like sometimes you just need a reminder and I need to remind myself of this all the time. And so that's in some ways what we, what we do. And so that's kind of what moral foundations theory is about. So, you know, it, it's all about our values come from this intuitionist place from our emotions. And then we try to describe these values in a, in a sort of descriptive way. And we, we do a lot of work about how liberals, you know, seem to care about these values and conservatives care about a different set of values. And so the, the, the values that we measure are, you know, harm, whether you care about whether you know, people are harmed or animals are harmed or used. Uh, fairness. So, you know, are things, are rewards distributed justly, equally, uh, proportionately to people's contributions? Loyalty. So are people loyal to their group, loyal to their family? You know, obeying sort of hierarchical authority. So, you know, do you, do you conform to traditions? Do you recognize uh, sort of things that have come before you and the social structures that, that exist. And then this idea of purity, which is, is it wrong to do unnatural things? And should I keep my, my, my body pure? Um, and then we also have this idea, you know, occasionally we, we realize that there are other intuitions. And so, you know, we, we added uh, liberty as an intuition and in some recent work we've done with libertarians. But I mean, I think sometimes people get caught up in how many foundations there are or that there are, you know, and, and I honestly think the, the biggest contribution of moral foundations theory is not that there are these five or six foundations. It's more just the idea that these are things that we all have evolved to care about at some level. Like there is some level, even the, even the most staunchly pro-choice liberal who doesn't have so much of a idea of purity, maybe they're, they're very, they're very secular. There are still things that you can you know, situations that you can, you can dumbfound them at a level of purity where you can show them things that are so disgusting that they just at a gut level feel they're wrong. And that's a lot of times what we will do in classes is we'll show people that like, Hey, you guys, 
you know, you guys are, you know, very liberal. You know, like I, I live in California, and so you, you can have a very liberal group of college students, and you can show them that, like, here's something that, like, you think you can't come up with a rational reason is wrong, and you just have that same purity reaction that you think that only belongs to religious conservatives. You have that too. It might just be a smaller level, but like you can get at that in, in the same way. So we all have these foundations in common. And and then, you know, we often do work like describing like, okay, so, you know, conservatives tend to weight these things more than liberals. And, and when you do that, you get, you get results like, you know, there's this stereotype of the heartless conservative. And that's just not true. Like, like you know, oftentimes what conservatives care about is, um, you know, they might apply their, the, if you were to say their, their circle of care might oftentimes be a little smaller, but it's not like, you know, they, they care about their families just as much as liberals do. And so, you know, and then you have this stereotype of like the disloyal liberal, the liberal who has no sort of grounding in, in, in group uh, identity. So you realize that a lot of these differences are kind of exaggerated, but by explaining them in a values neutral way, we hope, you know, we can sort of explain the political differences that people see without sort of all the demonization that often comes with it when people are like, you know, consider people heartless or, you know, disloyal, um, which are charges kind of that are just thrown out by both sides. So I want to get more into those, what you guys have identified those values to be, and especially these kind of dumbfounding questions. But let's go back to intuitionism in general. Are you, do you like uh, the rider and the elephant as an analogy for this? Can we work with that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I, I could explain it, but <laughs> you're, you're much more of a professional than I am. So why don't I, I'll start by just, just think, saying what I basically think it is and then fill me in where I'm missing something. Sure. So my understanding of this is that we tend to think of our brains as like uh, our prefrontal cortex, basically our, our executive function, our decision-making is like the driver of a vehicle and it tells our body and the rest of our brain what to do. It pulls the levers, it pushes the gas or the brake, and then that's how we sort of use our bodies and, and use the rest of our minds. But on moral foundations theory, the claim is that that's false. It's more like a rider on top of an elephant. An elephant is chosen because it is big and it is lumbering and it has a lot of power, but it does not have maybe the uh, the executive function of a human being riding on top of it. And so what actually happens is that our elephant, like our most of us, has these moral intuitions and has these experiences and has been shaped in a certain way and has grown up in a certain culture. And then our elephant sort of leans towards something. Like you can imagine a big old elephant kind of leaning and then the rider's job is to plot a course for the elephant once the elephant has started leaning. And so when we give an argument, let's say someone says, well, why do you think abortion is wrong? And then I spout out three or four logical reasons. What I think I'm doing is I'm telling them the reasons by which I've been convinced. But what I'm actually doing is I have, I lean towards some moral intuition about abortion. And I'm then using my brain to sort of come up with a post hoc justification for that leaning. And this is by default what people do. Obviously, on the theory, you can, you can start to work on this and, and correct it. But, but you know, by default, that's what I'm doing. And so then this explains why on Facebook or Twitter or a message board, when people just fire back 
arguments at each other, it doesn't work because they're the riders are firing arguments at each other and neither of them are addressing the elephant. So that's kind of my broad view. Yeah. What am I missing or how could that be filled out better? So I guess I'd say, um, you know, the, the rider elephant analogy is powerful, you know, exactly in the way you start out as far as like comparing yourself. A lot of us think that we're drivers of a car. We think we have like really precise control over ourselves and, you know, that, and we just don't, right? So like, again, like if I want to be more civil or compromise more, like I cannot just decide to do that. Um, you know, I, I, every year I, I make these New Year's resolutions, right? You know, I'm, I'm never going to fight with my, my, my wife. I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to always realize that she's right more often than not. And, uh, I fail, you know, <laughs> and so just me deciding to do that is not like, the solution, right? I need to put myself in situations and, and I need to address my elephant. It's much more like I have this elephant and I can decide like, this is where I want to get to, but I got to figure out ways to sort of influence the elephant to go in that direction, create situations that will, that will help. Um, so in that sense, it's pretty Aristotelian. I mean, it's about habit and character and getting and forming character over time through repeated actions and habits. Yeah, habits, uh, context, you know, a lot of social psychology is really about power of situations. Yeah, and, you know, relationships. A lot of our, our situations are really contextualized by the relationships that we have and the, and the experiences we have with the people around us. So that's, you know, one analogy that we use. Another analogy that I think gets at something else you were talking about is, is you know, the idea that, you know, I think we think that the, the our minds are, you know, again, like the, the race car driver. And, and, and really in, in a moral sense, our minds are really much more like lawyers. And so they argue the case for what we already know. And so, the, you know, when you're talking about like Facebook arguments, you know, any sort of rational argument, if you think of your mind as like a lawyer that has to argue the case that has been given to it by its sort of intuitions, I think you're much closer to, you know, how actual moral decision making is made. And, and I think it also gives you a sense of like why, you know, the arguments that we get into sort of never get anywhere, even, even in the face of, you know, facts, right? We think these facts are really important. But, you know, a good lawyer is never, you know, it's not like, you know, you, you watch one of those, those legal dramas and, you know, somebody comes out with this amazing fact and the lawyer just says like, oh, I give up. That's it. Right, like, right. The lawyers, that never the happens. The still keeps going on, right? Like, it's not, that's not what lawyers do. And that's, and so I think that analogy is really good as far as like understanding what your mind does. So you're, the right fact is never going to convince your mind. Well, so for instance, let's contextualize that. I found myself thinking through this last night. Because it came to light in the last two days that James Comey has taken memos after he has met with President Trump. And also there may be tapes of these conversations based on what Trump has sort of mentioned on or has tweeted, I should say, that Trump asked him to end an investigation into his own national security advisor. And in the past, the memorandums of an FBI director have totally been admissible in court as evidence. So, uh, I mean, as someone who's very open to Trump, you know, being removed, I think that's probably obstruction of justice, pretty clear and simple. And yet I found myself sitting there going, I'm not going to convince anybody with this. Like I don't, I got a little nihilistic about it, maybe appropriately. So of like, I think that I have the fact now. I what I want to do, what I feel compelled to do is go online or like email every Republican that I know and go, 
aha, look, here's the one incontrovertible thing. How can you possibly still support this man? And yet I know that that won't work. Ravi, why will that not work? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we are all social creatures first. Like we're all want to be good team members. And so I think a simpler case is like, I mean, if you've ever watched a sporting event where there was like a call that, you know, whether a guy stepped out of bounds or not, or whether somebody got off a shot before the, the time ran out. And there's like, you know, a replay that, you know, they can dissect to like the last, you know, to, to millimeters or tenths of a second. And, and so oftentimes the evidence is incontrovertible. But if you ever look online at what the fan groups say, like the fan groups never are convinced by this like incredibly clear evidence, right? Or they, They'll try and get out of it in some other way. They'll be like, oh, well, that's just a makeup for a call that happened. You know, it's never like, oh, yeah, we shouldn't have won, right? Like that. Or So even for sort of things that are far less complex and far more like, you know, this is not like science of the whole weather, climate, you know, or, or, or complex legal arguments. It's just like, did a guy step out of bounds or not, right? People cannot come to agreements on things like this. So people are not going to come to agreements on, you know, facts are just aren't going to be convincing. And I think, you know, a lot of us have found ourselves in this case. You know, I kind of like to use sports because it's something that's a little less charged and we can all sort of recognize our irrationality in the context of sports. And I think we all recognize that like we do these things. And, and so you do these things, not just in sports, you do these things in everything in our, our lives. So we're not going to convince people. So if we're not going to convince people, why, you know, like in some ways we just end up driving them away. We end up like, you know, as soon as something feels like an argument, you know, people go to their corners and they, they become sort of even more convinced because they got their lawyers sort of working for them, not just externally, but internally too. They got their lawyers like trying to come up with more arguments for why I'm right and the values and, and groups that I belong to uh, are are the correct ones, right? So yeah, I mean, it's... it's um, Another concept that I'll bring up, you know, it's a very simple psych 101 concept is just the idea of cognitive dissonance, right? It's like, it's painful to believe that you're wrong. And people do, will go to extreme lengths to avoid that, you know, the cognitive dissonance of like, you know, I belong to this party and my party has done terrible things. And, you know, like you, you want to feel good about yourself, right? You want to feel good about the things you've done. And, and it's not, you know, it's, in some ways that's what keeps us, sane as human beings, right? The, the kind of person who doesn't do that is often a person who, you know, struggles with, it keeps us happy to be able to sort of tell ourselves these stories. So it's, it's very adaptive and it's very common. And so we shouldn't be surprised when, you know, something like about Comey and, and Trump comes out and, you know, I kind of let that stuff kind of wash over me a bit because I, I know that, you know, I don't, I, I would never like try to publish or share something about that because I, I know it's just going to kind of reinforce people's our pre-existing opinions. The kind of stuff I like to share, you know, a little bit more online is about stuff about like people getting along across the aisle. Cause I think, you know, just, just watching people, you know, sort of changing the environment that people are in. Cause if all people see are people fighting about things, then they, you know, it's kind of like watching members of your sports team get into a brawl with members of the other sports team. Right. And then everyone in the stands sort of, starts to get all amped up too. Whereas if you can start to see people getting along, then it kind of changes the situation and the character. And so to me, that's stuff that actually could could actually form a bridge between you and, and all those people that you want to send this article about Trump and Comey. If they start to see like, oh, look, you know, there's actually a group of uh, Democrats and Republican senators getting, you know, trying to, trying to come up with bipartisan solutions and, and for healthcare. 
So the point is not to identify exactly which moral foundations exist or don't exist, and Ravi's kind of de-emphasizing that, but I did want to give you guys a sense of what we're talking about. So I asked him to briefly describe the five or six foundations that they have identified thus far in their research. You know, there's harm, whether people are uh, hurt, there's fairness, whether things are distributed justly, there's loyalty, or in, and that's, you know, whether you're loyal to your group or to whether you define the groups as a small group or a large group. And then there's authority, you know, obeying rightful authority. And then there's purity, which is the, um, you know, the disgust, sort of not doing unnatural things. And then lastly, you know, we, we've added recently the, the idea of liberty, which is um, the idea that people should not be forced to do things that they, people should have some, some kind of autonomy. But we actually, you know, we do research on, t- on, t- on new foundations that, may exist. I mean, there are, there are other intuitions that, and, and a lot of it's about like trying to figure out like where things overlap, where there's similar intuitions that are sort of, you know, and, and, you know, cause you could easily, some of these things you could easily construct post hoc through rational means. So we're trying to figure out like, you know, are these things always coming out of the same sort of um, intuitionist module or are they sort of derive more independently. And, you know, in some ways, you know, some of my colleagues probably might take a little stronger opinion on this. I, I'm, again, just, I'm probably one of the more agnostic ones about like, I don't really have a strong opinion about whether they're five or six or 12 or three. I, you know, I, I just think that it's more the approach that is useful to think about and less, less of like the, the individual thing. But I mean, it is, it is useful, I think, though, to the idea of measuring people's values and using it to sort of, um, explain differing political opinions and difference and in a more descriptive way, that's definitely useful. And, and, and you could even use it not just in, I mean, not just in political context, but even in, you know, deciding what uh, TV shows you should watch or, you know, where you should live, you know, those things are often values driven as well. So, um, so there's definitely value in sort of measuring people's values, you know, in a, in a more sort of utilitarian way, just for the purpose of this conversation, I find the, the, it's more the, the overarching theme that, that I think is more useful. But one of the ways you were talking about using those values is to sort of show people that there is a value that someone else very clearly expresses. Like, so maybe let's use loyalty. Yeah, loyalty and authority, right? So I like the example of uh, Colin Kaepernick not standing for the anthem because it, I think it, gets at a lot of this because it was nonviolent, right? And so people on the left who liked what he did were like, look, this is exactly what protests should look like. He's, it's totally nonviolent. Nobody is harmed or hurt. He's bringing attention to injustices. And those on the right were like, look, he's not respecting the flag. So he's not respecting those who have died for our country. He's basically rebelling against the authority of his employers and the NFL who require standing. And, and so you have these kind of arguments, people talking past each other. Can you talk about that instance in light of either the authority or the loyalty or both of those uh, moral modules? Yeah. I mean, I think you hit it on the head that, yeah, many liberals are less activated by, you know, sort of loyalty they they you know different people prioritize different foundations differently so you know liberals will tend to prioritize harm to sort of others and oftentimes not just close others but distant others so you could say you know harm to 
racial groups that might not even be in my community, but liberals will prioritize that over loyalty in some cases. And in other cases, uh, you know, conservatives might have made the opposite judgment about which is more important. But I think, as you pointed out, the important thing to realize is that we all have both intuitions, right? There are, if you were to take, uh, you know, oftentimes if you take a conservative person and a lot of times they want to help others, but they often have more of an idea of there's limited resources. And you see this in like debates about budget, right? It's about the debt and it's about like, can we afford to do this, right? It's not like they don't want to help the poor, but they, they really believe that, you know, there isn't enough money and that, you know, we really should be concerned about our debt. And they're not wrong. I mean, like, you know, there is a certain amount of money that, or, or taxation or, or resources that we can afford or not. And, and you could argue about what that level is, but it's not infinite, right? There is some level where too much taxation will reduce sort of like everyone's overall output, right? So it's not, so the point is that conservatives have the same intuition of wanting to help distant others, right? And, and the same thing that liberals have loyalty intuitions as well. And so, you know, I, I would just say that, um, you know, most liberals, maybe they, they feel slightly less concerned about, um, you know, there might be differences about how patriotic they are and, you know, I'm not saying that they, everyone is, that many are not patriotic, but, but there are, there probably are differences with, with respect to conservatives, but liberals probably care very deeply about, it would probably seem unnatural to a liberal to not care about your children more than other people's children, right? So there are some preferences that even the most liberal person would find odd to, to not have. You know, they probably might try to rationalize it as like, why? But at some level, I don't think you'd want to socialize with someone who cared about other children as much as their own children or did not prioritize their children. And that that's kind of what be, making a moral judgment is. It's about another thing we talk about is moral thinking is for social doing. So you might not have a rational reason, but if you're not, if you're, if you would judge someone enough to be like, I don't want to be friends with that person. I don't want to hang out with that person. You know, that's kind of what a moral judgment is. And so if you don't want to hang out with someone who is not loyal to their children, yes, you too have some degree of loyalty uh, in your DNA as well. So all of this is leading up to a big question, but I'm going to leave you with a little cliffhanger and just be a jerk and say, if you haven't started listening to Reconstruct and you are interested in theology, please check it out. It's my other podcast co-hosted with John Rains, and it's basically a show for people who have done some deconstruction of their faith and want to reconstruct or maybe are in the process of deconstruction, the process of reconstruction, somewhere in the middle, or have people in their life who have gone through some deconstruction who have had doubts and have maybe lost their faith or left the church and they're wondering why people might do that. There's a bit there for for folks like that. So check it out. Reconstruct. Reconstructpodcast.com has some essays by John and I on various topics and you can find the show in whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. So back to that big question that all of this was leading to. What can we do about it? How do groups depolarize? Here's what Ravi has to say. So we make two main recommendations that are, you know, one is, you know, start with relationships, which I've talked about, which is, you know, you know, make friends, don't leave with facts. And that's kind of like the, the flip side of that is like, don't worry so much about the rational side. The second thing we talk about is cooperation versus competition. So, you know, put yourself in cooperative situations and not competitive situations, which is, yeah. you know, a lot of times psychologists do these things with minimal groups where we, 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 you know, 
form two arbitrary groups, we have them compete, and then we measure how much they dislike each other, and they always dislike each other. And then you you can do the same thing, and you get them to cooperate and and work together on a task, and they start to like each other. There's this there's this Heineken commercial that went viral recently, uh, where people put together a they put together a bar, and I mean that's just classic social science. Like they they do two things they they um, they get to know each other, and then they work together on a task, and those things are almost universal. And you see them play out over and over again where like it's not surprising that Democrats and Republicans don't like each other because they're always campaigning against each other, right? So it's it's a permanent competition, a permanent campaign. But if you get them to cooperate on something, if you if there's like um I mean, it's not that we want this, but if there were a war, they would totally cooperate because there would be some cooperative thing to do. Or if we can come up with some, you know, sort of national project that needs to be done, you know, and, and hopefully we can start to think of healthcare or the economy or some things is like climate change, whatever it is, as a national project that needs to be done that is bigger than the campaign, then, you know, some of these things are solvable. So I read an article pushing back against that Heineken ad that I wanted to get your take on. And basically this author was saying like, (laughs) you know, Heineken's pulling the wool over your eyes. Uh, They're using this artificial scenario to normalize transgender hatred. I don't need to build a bar with somebody and have a beer with somebody whose people have oppressed my people and, and kind of, uh, you know, like a, like a pretty react reactive yeah, I think kind I, of a post. I, I read that article, I think. And, and, and uh, I mean, you're always one going to get those kinds of reactions yeah. because, you know, people want to be members of their group and, and for, you know, some people define their whole identities. I mean, there's, there's cognitive distance in being someone who's like, you know, so anti the other side that, and, and you know, having, if, if that's so part of your identity, it's going to be hard to, to come together. But I guess what I'd say is that you don't do these things for the other side. You don't do them because, you know, you're not, it's not like something you're doing for somebody else. I think if half the country has an opinion you kind of have to meet them where they are, you know, just because that's, that's how progress is made. Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I get why people are resistant to coming together with people who they see as having opinions and beliefs that are against their values. But if you want to change their values, if you want to change society, you know, you're not, you're not doing it because you're trying to do them a favor. Like if you want society, it's, it's just a question of like, what do you want society change or not? I mean, and, and scientifically, and this is where science I think can help us is that you're not going to change society by having that attitude of animosity towards the other side. In fact, you're going to lead to sort of a backlash reaction. And that's like, I think, okay, why do we know that that's true? Well, I mean, I think we experience this in our daily lives. Like, when was the last time any of us has had a Facebook argument that actually convinced someone of the other side? But the science is, is, is similar in that, you know, there are, when people compete, they, they become blind to the arguments of the other side, to the humanity of the other side. And so attitudes never change. You know, there's some great work by, uh, Dan Kahan out of uh, Yale about how facts just don't matter. And sometimes the people who are most rational and most knowledgeable about facts are the ones who wield facts as swords the most. And so you're never going to get there by arguing the other side in submission. So think about an issue like um, gay marriage, which you know society has unequivocally evolved on. 
a lot of what changed opinions there was not, um, it was things like will and grace, right? It's like, it's like, the, it's, right. it's normalization. It's, it's realizing that, you know, I, I, I've, I've done, you know, a number of events with, um, people who are advocates of religious liberty and people who are, um, more, uh, gay rights advocates. And what changes minds is having a person in your family or a person you care about who is homosexual. And so like, if people just don't engage, that attitude change just won't happen. That's how attitude change happens. So you can just decide, you know, if, if you're really upset about a transsexual individual meeting with someone who's, I mean, like, do you want attitude change to happen or not? I mean, and, and I, I'm not going to make a judgment. I mean, that's not necessarily like my place. In, in there's no, there's no scientific way to say that when you should do something, you should do something else. But there is a scientific way to say that one thing is more likely to lead to attitude change and one thing is not. And so not engaging is not going to lead and, and not, not engaging is not going to lead to attitude change. And animosity is going to lead to the opposite. Direction. Yeah. I mean, I, the way I've been thinking about it is like, if you as an advocate for your oppressed group, take a stance of complete lack, like no surrender and uh, no compromise and I'm not here to baby people who don't see the world as it really is. What you are effectively doing is you are exalting your own self-righteousness and sense of identity and security at the expense of practical help for the people for whom you are claiming to be an advocate. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'd, you know, I'd say that you can decide to help people or you can hold on to your moral sort of righteousness and you know, people can decide for themselves what, what's more important. And, and it's not like, you know, moral positions are there for a reason. Like maybe there are some things that aren't worth compromising. You know? So I'm not saying that people right. should compromise, but I am saying people oftentimes have a choice between holding to their morals so steadfastly or actually, you know, trying to change hearts and minds. Well, and you can even imagine a case in which some people would feel like, no, you know what? It doesn't matter. Uh, like I'm a pacifist. I think it's better that like, I get blown up and everyone around me gets blown up because eventually pacifism will win out. And that's, that's fine. I mean, that, that is a view that some people hold, right? Especially like religious pacifists just go, you know what? It's all in God's hands. And literally I should not kill Hitler. I should nonviolently protest. And if everyone did that, the world would be a much better place. That is one way of thinking about things, but Generally, I find these people who are unwilling to compromise, like the woman who wrote that Huffington Post piece about the Heineken ad, is she's got a really particular political agenda that is this worldly and that she would like to, you know, she wants basically prison reform and she wants LGBT rights and et cetera, right? So you could imagine a moral position that does not care about results, but mostly that's not what we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I would a lot of these people honestly, I I want the same things too. Like I want LGBT rights. I want prison reform. I just, you know, we we work with a, a group out here in California, um, living room conversations and they had conversations around prison reform between people who are on different sides of the issue and that is more likely to lead to actual prison reform than uh, you know, talking, you know, the more you try to draw lines about that sort of divide people then I think that's less likely to lead to prison reform. Um, and so you kind of have to choose sometimes like the thing that feels good and the thing that actually will, will affect change. Oh gosh, Robbie, that is, 
That's it. That's amazing. Um, I want to talk about so many more things with you. We only have a few more minutes, so maybe I'll have you on again to talk about identity politics, political centrism, etc. But before I ask you my final question about left and right, let's talk about civilpolitics.org. We've been kind of talking about what you do, but just give us some, you know, give us the pitch. I mean, a lot of what we do is just this, which is just talking to people, educating the public about what social science says will lead to less polarization and, and more civility. So, you know, we define the public broadly. That means, you know, your community. That means uh, people who come to our website. That means uh, we've had, you know, business leaders who just want to convene a bunch of people at their shop. We've had, uh, you know, people at a school board who want to talk, you know, more civilly in their organization. We've had politicians. We have organizations like Living Room Conversations or Village Square who, who are explicitly doing this work, getting people to come together. And for all of them, we just offer the, the research that we have. So we're not, a, we're not a giant organization. We're really just people, academics trying to offer what we have to offer to, to educate people about here's how change happens and, and here's how change you know maybe doesn't happen as often. And uh, we're hopeful that that knowledge, um, you know, can be applied by a lot of our partners and other organizations to, uh, you know, to, to help make the situation better in ways that, that we think are more evidence-based. Is the healing of our political divide, like our national political divide, is it only accomplishable at an individual level, that healing? It, it kind of seems like that's what you're saying. It, you have to get in person with people or at least to learn – at least to learn the um, the new values or the new whatever procedures that you're going to operate by. Yes. I mean, there definitely has to be things that happen at an individual level, but a lot of times those things are facilitated at a group level or at a systems level. So, you know, uh, one thing we're interested in studying, or we, we do study. So we, another thing we do is we do some of our, um, we still do active, we're active researchers, we publish articles, and, and we use that to sort of inform uh, some of the things that we, we talk to partners about. And, and one active area of research that we're, we're pursuing now, um, in partnership with uh, an organization called the Bridge Alliance, is research on social media. So social media is obviously something that, you know, can tear us apart, you know, and, and, and in some ways, uh, you know, there's research that um, negative information is three times more likely to get clicks than positive information. So the, the media environment we live in sort of incentivizes media organizations to talk about, you know, the latest slam that politician A is, is making on politician B. And there's research in psychology about how just knowing people who are not getting along with other people, people in your group not getting along with people in the other group, that constant barrage of information is bound to have an effect on your opinions about the other group. So what's missing is all the times when people are getting along across the partisan divide. There, and there are lots of senators who get along, and there are actually bipartisan you know, pieces of legislation. Before, you know, before Trump took office, there was a, a, a big mental health bill that was bipartisan that got passed. And you know, no, I don't think there was hardly any media coverage about this sort of bipartisan accomplishment in part because it's just not as interesting. It doesn't get as many clicks. It doesn't get as much media. It doesn't, it doesn't draw eyeballs that advertisers want. Right. And so we kind of have to fight against that. And so th there, so there are systems level approaches of what can we do to inform the algorithms that, you know, Facebook has as far, because I don't, I don't think Facebook wants to be, I mean, I, I know people who work with this, but they don't want to, they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be tearing people apart. You know, nobody wants to be part of a system that is causing this much polarization. And so I think there are ways that we can reform the system in addition to 
uh, you know, reform the incentives in the system so that we're not at least, at least we're balanced, right? We're not like incentivizing people to publish the most negative thing possible. So yeah, I mean, I think there are, there's, there are definitely, there's an individual thing that has to happen, but sometimes that thing can be facilitated at more of a mass level by, by looking at the systems that, that cause individuals to interact or not interact. In closing, I asked Ravi, like I do basically all my guests, my final question, which is based on all that he's seen, what does the right tend to get wrong about our moral and political psychology or our social politics? And then what does the left tend to get wrong as well? So it's a little easier for me to answer the left because I often make that argument. And that's just that, um, and, and I am sort of guilty of this as well. And that's just, you know, I think it's natural for people on the left to be a little bit more rational about, you know, not to, not to sort of almost satire the idea of gut level intuition and not realize that that's important and that it's, it's not, there is wisdom there. There is, there are things that we care about there and it's not something to be just sort of dismissed as like, you know, real thinking occurs at the rational level, but you know, those people think that they're guts and so they're like not smarter. So basically, yeah, we, we then call them sort of ignorant, uh, hillbillies basically. Yeah. Which is just not, it's, it's both unuseful and untrue. So because there's everyone, everyone's intuitions come out of their gut and, just have making those kinds of arguments just drive other people away and drive them away from the viewpoints. Right. And and not to rabbit trail here, but I'm reading guns, germs and steel by Jared diamond right now. And he's talking about how he he's worked. He spent all these years working with people in new Guinea. And he says, you know, there's this idea about new Guineans that like they're resistant to change and entrepreneurship and whatever. He's like, but these guys can walk me through a forest and point out 800 species of plant. They know exactly the use for everything. And when they come with me to America, they ask me questions about all the flora and fauna around and they bring back stuff that might be useful to them. It's just not true that they don't have mental capacities like Westerners. They just live in a different culture. Yep, absolutely. So there's all sorts of wisdom and all sorts of ways of knowing um, that I think the left doesn't appreciate. And then on the right, I would say, so... I think, you know, there is research about, you know, sort of negativity bias and we all have negativity bias. We're all, it's all, you know, keeps us alive to worry more about the negative things and paying attention to the positive things. But I think that as society gets wealthier, safer, and like, I think, you know, and, and, you know, empirically society is getting safer, wealthier, there's more food, there's less crime, there's less war. And I think that, people on the right don't realize that, don't internalize that as well as they could so that, you know, they can allow themselves to let some of their other intuitions uh, hold. Like, you know, that, you know, there is more stuff than they think there is in the world. And, you know, the world actually is getting better. It's not, you know, like, you know, like Donald Trump often will, he, he, he sort of preys on this, I think. And he, you know, he makes the world seem like this terrible, terrible place that's getting worse and worse and worse. And that's just empirically false. You know, I think people on the, on the right are to sort of realize that that is empirically false and think a little bit more about the possibilities that occur in a world where things are actually getting better. You can find Ravi's work at civilpolitics.org. You can find him on Twitter at Ravi Data Iyer. So R-A-V-I-D-A-T-A-I-Y-E-R. Remember to check out Reconstruct if you haven't yet. And if you'd like to give financially to this show, you can do so. Patreon.com slash Depolarize. Or there's a Become a Patron button at depolarizepodcast.com. 
Thank you guys, and we'll see you next week.